Well, we're particularly excited about today's episode. You know, we've done a few of these now, Brian, and we've uh, had an opportunity to talk about the journey of care that is truly our North Star on the Patient No Longer podcast. But now we're getting into specific issues, trends, I would even say themes that are affecting healthcare. And we've got the opportunity with today's guest to dig into a theme we have not yet been able to explore, but that's about to change. Today, we're going to be welcoming the CEO of Fairview Health, James Hereford. James, hello. Good morning. How are you doing? We're doing pretty good, and we're excited to have you on. We have an hour with you, and uh, that that's a that's a real treat because James is in charge of Fairview Health. It's got thirty four thousand employees, over five thousand employed docs. So we've got thousands and thousands of people that James oversees. This is a multi billion dollar health system. I want you to keep that in mind as we talk about today's theme. Uh, James comes from the West Coast, born in Montana. So we've got someone from Big Sky Country here. And then he was COO at Stanford Health. I've heard of Stanford. I've also heard of Stanford. Yeah, <laughs> I think it rings a bell. And I mean, we're in Nebraska, but we've heard of other places. <laughs> we've heard of Stanford, yes. <laughs> and now he's come all the way to our neck of the woods, really, not too far away in Minnesota as the CEO of Fairview Health. So it's a pleasure to have you on. James, I want to just get into a phrase, and really it's the theme of today, but it's a phrase that I've heard you talk about so eloquently and in such an actionable way that I want to explore your definition of it. You've talked a lot about two words, care transformation. Can you tell us in your own words and in healthcare what care transformation means to you? Well, I think it's about a uh, systemic approach to how do we um, construct and deliver care in our systems of care. Uh, and to do so in a way that is oriented around uh, our patients and their needs, uh, as opposed to organizing around ourselves or organizing around uh, our uh, kind of what's the, the path of least resistance, which I think for uh, a large part of healthcare, that's been the approach is, you know, what's the path of least resistance? Where can we continue to kind of perpetuate uh, the system that we currently have. And I think we're uh, running uh, out of runway uh, in terms of the system that we currently have. It's unsustainable. And so uh, you have to think about transformation as the response to that. I mean, I love that. And I love how you say, you know, we're running out of runway. I, I think that that's so interesting because we've done things the organizational way. It's in, in all of healthcare. I'll, I'll make that accusation that we've really been very caught up in our own process, in our own organizational structure, in our own strategy. Now, when you say that, James, in such a, such a succinct, clear way, tell me more about what it means to go against being organizational-centric and being patient-centric, because as I mentioned at the outset, it's a big organization you run with a lot of people and a lot of processes that are involving those people. So how do you take that big, massive conglomeration and put the patient at the center of it? I think a lot of organizations, especially big ones, struggle to do that. Well, um, you know, first, let me be clear, this isn't altruistic. I think this is the path that uh, is the best one for our organization to take to sustain itself and to be able to serve its fundamental mission. Uh, yeah, for the most part, uh, with very few exceptions, 
everybody at Fairview Health Services and M Health Fairview are here to care for patients. Uh, it's all the other stuff that tends to get in the way. Uh, so to the degree that we can do a better job of providing that care, and let me say another, uh, just one other kind of coda on the, on the care part. Um, but to your point about your question about how do you align 34,000 people? Well, the best way is to align them around something that they care deeply about, which is the care for patients. I think the challenge uh, for healthcare organizations is if you think about product versus service versus solution organizations, right? Healthcare has tended to be uh, a product organization. You know, what do you do? You deliver a visit, you deliver a procedure, et cetera. But that's not why people come to us. We're also a service organization because in large part, our value is transmitted through our caregivers, our wonderful people. There's an experiential part of this. But again, we're not Disneyland. People don't come to us for the experience that they have. They come to us because they want a solution. They have a health issue. Uh, they want to be healthier. Uh, they have something that they want to achieve in their interaction with us uh, that is about providing them a solution. And I think that's part of the reframing that we need to do as healthcare systems is to think about, so what's a system that's oriented around our customers, our patients, that provides systematically excellent, reliable solutions to the needs that they have? That's not been the history of healthcare. Yeah, <clears throat> I want to touch on all. something. That, yeah, I want to touch on something you mentioned there, and and I think it's the notion of the of being designed around the assets that the organization currently has. We've got these big buildings everywhere, clinics, certain number of of uh, you know folks work for the organization, all those kinds of things. So we we need to d design things and offer services in such a way that's good for us, that makes sense for us. And then over here, there's this other. Uh, idea that in order to be financially solvent, it's going to be, you know, we're going to need to change. We're going to need to, you know, do something different, offer care in, in different ways, more accessible ways, more affordable ways, things like that. I think up, up until very recently, those two ideas have been thought of as sort of mutually exclusive, where you'd have, you, you can do things the way that we can do things, the way that we've always done things. Then there's this maybe other challenging notion of, of maybe we're not going to be as financially solvent as we, you know, have been in the past if we continue down this this path. So, you know, what is what's the balance that you're trying to strike there in terms of how much can how much can Fairview afford to change? If we're, we'll use that word, uh, how much can you afford to change while also being considerate of uh, your current assets and things like that? You know, all the buildings, all the people, and and being considerate to that. So I suppose you can think of those as mutually exclusive, but I don't. Um, I, I think of that as uh, how do we make sure that what we're doing is the appropriate care delivered in the right way by the right person at the right time, et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, if we have a business model that's based on inappropriate care, right, of doing procedures that aren't necessary, that's not a sustainable business model in any business, right? So, uh, you know, I think for us, <clears throat> the sustainable business model is how do we provide solutions to people in a marketplace? That's the nature of our healthcare uh, industry. It is a market. People have the ability to choose where they go. Uh, can we uh, provide unique solutions at any, at any point in the continuum, whether it's preventative solutions or whether it's the most complex quaternary solutions, uh, transplantation, et cetera. But can we provide effective solutions? 
I think in that context, then you're in a better position as an organization, not simply to survive, but thrive, because people are getting their needs met in a way that is effective to them. Now, to do that, though, you also have to be able to uh, meet their expectations and their expectations. There's a transference from the expectations, the experience they have uh, in other industries. They expect us to be digitally enabled. They expect us to be able to actually move information around effectively within our system so they don't have to repeat their story, that we're anticipatory of their needs, that we really understand at a, a, a you know a more global sense what those needs are, uh, and that we deliver care in a way that is based on, you know, unnecessary variation being reduced. Uh, it's scientifically uh, evidence-based and uh, caring. And I think those things uh, allow you to have a very effective uh, business model uh, in which uh, people uh, will reward you because you're providing them an experience and providing them a solution uh, that's better than other offerings in the marketplace. And that's, I mean, that makes us all better. It does. And I, I really like how you describe it because it's it's refreshing to hear a CEO, especially of a large uh, organization, talk so freely about, you know, having to operate under the pressures of normal business. It's so easy in healthcare to say, well, healthcare is different. And to say, well, you know, a lot of people really don't have a choice. And what you just said, James, about consumers having a choice and you acknowledging that, which means you acknowledge their expectations are important if they have a choice and their loyalty is important and the actual experience is important to retain them. I mean, understanding that consumers have a choice is a tenet of consumerism in healthcare that we've talked about for years. I'm curious to know, especially when you said the phrase, uh, a business model and inappropriate care, um, which I've never heard it described quite like that, but it immediately clicks. You know, if you were talking to consumers, they would point out one of the most inappropriate parts of care is paying for it. And we just came fresh off of an NRC Health webinar called The Pain of Paying, and we were absolutely talking about healthcare billing. So I am curious to know, as you think through, you know, initially your, your uh, the definition of care transformation, but also just inappropriate care, where does cost come into play and consumer spending so much money or getting a surprise bill or, or just really having to wade through many different bills and just that whole process of paying for care? What, what's your opinions on that? And, and where are you guys trying to improve that piece of it? Well, I think the... The, the experience of the financing of care has become much more front and send, center for uh, consumers, right? Uh, we spent the last 15 plus years basically balancing the economics of healthcare on the backs of individuals, right? We've increased premiums, we've impre uh, improved or increased cost, uh, cost uh, shares, whether that's uh, deductibles or co-insurance, et cetera. Uh, so uh, they're much more sensitive to the costs of care. Um, now, there are two aspects of this. There's the, the actual costs of our care and the pricing associated with that, right? And then there's the experience of having to navigate the financial side of care. So on the first, you know, part of what we're uh, working very hard on is to make sure that we're reducing our costs, right? To make sure that we're doing things in the most efficient, effective way, whether that's on the direct clinical side or that's on the indirect support 
of the clinical care that we provide to make sure that we continue to reduce costs. And we've done a lot and continue to do uh, quite a bit on that. Uh, there's also, and then it, as you point out, uh, we run some of the most capital intensive uh, buildings in, in the world, right? You, you go into a, uh, an academic medical center hospital, uh, that may be some of the most expensive real estate uh, in the universe. I know when I was at Stanford, I always used to say our ORs were the most expensive uh, real estate in the universe, given their location on Stanford University in the middle of the Silicon Valley. We have to be able to make sure that we're using those assets effectively, right? That we're utilizing them, we have good flow, we uh, have uh, minimal waste, uh, et cetera. So that is a part of it. But the other aspect that I think people feel much more acutely is the division between the paying of uh, care delivery and the, recept, receive, the receiving uh, of care delivery. And that we make this so convoluted, so challenging, right? To, uh, you know, how do I get something paid for? How do I know how expensive something is before it happens? Uh, why do I get all of these separate bills? We have created such complexity as a result of our pretty significant separation between the paying of care and the financing of care from the payer's perspective and the delivery of care. And we're in a pretty active competition at all times with our payers, right? Because it's a contractual relationship and they're trying to get the uh, least amount uh, paid uh, for them. And we're trying to get, we're trying to maximize that based on the contractual uh, relationship. The problem though, is we get overly focused on ourselves in that relationship. And the consumers are the people who are left uh, with a horrible experience. Right. And often we're blaming each other. The payer is blaming the, the provider. The provider is blaming the payer. We're probably both uh, at some level of uh, blame is appropriate. But I see the future as much more enlightened relationships between payers and providers where we go after a much better patient experience where we simplify a lot of the economics of care, provide better transparency. And again, that's a solution that the market will respond positively to. And you don't have to look too far outside of our own kind of uh, payer provider world to some of the other uh, healthcare organizations that are now valued in the billions who are coming after that space because they see the complexity in the problem as well. Yeah, price transparency is a big one. Uh, Ryan and I talk a lot about this. Uh, there's there's been a prompt from CMS and others to write to to increase the amount of price transparency that health systems are willing to uh, provide online for for consumers. And I think there's probably even that's been pretty complex and maybe hard for the lay consumer to understand. But it's getting it's getting more and more. Um, it's going in the right direction, I, I would say. How do you feel about price transparency as you know as its role in demystifying some of the, the cost relationships between you and those that provide services uh, to the health system, and then in turn, what and how you can quote procedure and, and, and pricing to, to the consumer who's looking for that information. What Do you see price transparency as laid out by the government right now, the, uh, the appropriate first step, or would you have done that a little bit differently? How does Fairview respond to it? Uh, well, we certainly are observing the uh, legal uh, requirements of providing uh, price transparency. But here's the problem. If I were really going to provide meaningful transparency to a patient, what do I need to know? Well, 
I need to know a lot about their benefit structure, right? I need to know what their the benefits they bought, where they're at in any uh, deductibles, co-insurance, et cetera. I also need to know, understand what the decisions are that they're coming to with the, uh, their provider around what the best course of treatment is. And in real time, and plus, oh, by the way, I need to know, you know, with that provider uh, and that payer, what are the contractual discounts and, you know, what's the specific relationship of that provider, uh, that network uh, to the payer. I need to combine all that in real time and provide basically decision support to a patient about saying, you know, well, look, I have uh, pain in my back. Should I have surgery? Should I do PT? Should I do watchful waiting? Should I do something else? Should I have an injection? Well, all of those have cost implications, right? All of those have clinical and life consequences. For me to provide meaningful transparency, I need to bring all of that together in the exam room in real time for that economic component to be a part of that clinical decision-making. Well, what we're doing now comes nowhere close to that, right? It is a, a nod in the general direction, but isn't going to be meaningful. Now, having said that, I think one of the things that's going to be fascinating to watch it play out is because this has to be a machine-readable form, that means others are going to be able to access it. How that information is then used downstream to be able to configure uh, value-add to it outside of, frankly, the provider and payer uh, may prove to be interesting. And I think that's what uh, government, as they thought about this and the way that they specified it, was thinking about was not the direct impact today, but what are the downstream impacts of having that information readily available uh, to be computerized, to be uh, to leverage AI, to leverage uh, analytics, uh, to maybe come up with better solutions. The ideal solution, though, still brings together the clinical and the economic into a single coherent decision-making framework. And we're a long ways away from that. Seems like a market opportunity for uh, <laughs> a little bit <laughs> for some exciting Silicon Valley tech uh, right. startup. It just might be. And, and I love the way, James, you, you fuse the two in your answer to what the solution is, the financing care, as you talked about, and also the delivery care. And if we think about pricing just a little bit further, you know, I think everyone agrees that delivery of care is the patient experience. Unfortunately, we tend to put borders around that. And we don't include financing care. And yet, when we talk to consumers, they will describe paying for the bill weeks later as part of the patient experience. That is a big stop. It's usually the last stop on a patient journey of care. And you can do all the right things in care delivery. But if things fall apart in the financing of care, uh, you've, it, it can cast a pall over all of the rest of that experience. It can erase the hard work of doctors and nurses and caregivers on site. And so I love the way that you fuse the two together. And I, we completely agree. The machine-readable format is huge, right? Because it's a lot different than we used to have the charge master in a binder <laughs> wrapped in chains in a safe in the billing office in the back, right? Behind a you know fake bookcase. Now it's on the website. Even if it's buried in the sitemap and it's not consumer-friendly, there are third parties champing at the bit to get it. I do think if we could do a half pivot, you know, the issue of price transparency for consumers 
underlies the complexity of it. I don't even know how to pay. Sometimes as a consumer, I struggle with that. Brian, I, I want to talk to James about complexity, but you you have a couple good points in some of the talks you do about complexity. Why don't you share a little bit of that? Of, of that? Well, well, complexity comes up as a key theme anytime we're talking about changing literally anything in, in, <laughs> right. in healthcare, right? In business in general, but certainly in healthcare, there's there's more caveats. Uh, one 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 quote that I use a lot when giving. Uh, we'll call it transformation, challenging pitches, right, to organizations. It's a quote actually from a Ford Motor executive and said, you know, as you're, as you're thinking about all this, as you're mapping it all out, remember that complexity is free. <laughs> Not only free, but also really easy. So you think about how easy it is to, make, to, to muddle something up and, and, right. and not challenge yourself to, to think about something, uh, doing, to changing a process, making it one, you know, 10% more efficient, removing one step out of the long chain of things. Uh, right. And I think that, that applies, obviously, to the patient experience in terms of handoffs from you know, as one individual navigating a health system or, or maybe one particular health episode. Right. right. And seeing different providers and going different office to office and all that kind of stuff. That's a lot to manage for an individual. It's incredibly complex and it's really hard for that, that individual to sort of compartmentalize and make sense of each individual piece. Exactly. Right. So uh, I think one of the best answers that we've seen for it, and we've, we've heard some of our guests uh, talk about this and, and the answer, I think the, the anecdote to complexity is, is to simply ask how you could make this an easier experience for you. So right. who is the customer? Identify who that is. In some cases, it's a provider. In some cases, it's actual person receiving care. Right. And sometimes it's the payer, right? But but how, how can we actually remove a step? How can we remove two steps, make it 15% more efficient? Those kinds of things right. um, is, is a really good first step anyway towards towards resolving complexity. I'd love, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, James. Well, I love the quote. I mean, the ad I would I would put to it is complexity is free, often for those that are making things more complex, right? It's not free. Somebody's paying for that complexity uh, yeah. somewhere right. along the line, right? Good point. But often the people who are making decisions about it, it's free to them, right? Think about this is our regulatory environment, right? You can add all kinds of regulations. You can add prior authorization, often for the people who are deciding those uh, that complexity, those encumbrances, it's free to them. It's not free, right? Somebody is paying the price for that complexity. Now, the way that we're approaching it, and I, I absolutely agree with you, I think simplifying this incredibly complex um, effort, which has largely been grown, it's grown up as a cottage industry, right? The, the individual provider providing a service, sending you to another provider if they couldn't, you know, if there was something else needed, sending you to a hospital. It was all kind of a very loose, unconnected network. The promise of healthcare systems is to change that. I don't know that we have yet, um, as systems across the country, healthcare systems, delivered on that promise, right? I think in large part, we have perpetuated a lot of the history of our cottage industry called healthcare. What we're doing is two things. One is we really have um, thought about the organization of our organization differently. So we've organized around service lines as opposed to buildings, right? Because often what people are experiencing is they have cancer. Now they may see you know, they may see their individual medical oncologist, they may see a surgical oncologist, they may get radiation therapy, they may be in a clinic, they may be in a hospital, they may be in an infusion center. But for them, it is a, an experience that spans all of that. 
But the way we've traditionally organized is around sites. So the hospital is doing the best it can do, but it doesn't really know what's going on in the, in the clinic or in the infusion center uh, if it's on the ambulatory side. So we've organized around our service lines rather than our, our buildings in the sense that we try to do all of our planning um, and you know, drive our quality, safety, et cetera, through our service lines. But we also, uh, under the leadership of uh, Dr. Genevieve Melton-Mukes, uh, who's a colorectal surgeon, but also a terrific informaticist, um, but more so uh, really driving, I think, a process around care mapping across our service lines, where we're really thinking about, so how from a process perspective, does that patient experience this longitudinal set of decisions and experiences and package it into a coherent whole so that they see the entirety of it and including as we get better at this more of the cost side because what's the ideal well the ideal would be to say it's almost you know a capitated uh, bundled if you will environment we'll take care of it you don't have to here's a an amount and we'll take care of everything and no matter what happens we've got you and that's the amount you and your payer are going to have to your provider are going to have to uh, spend on this uh, I think that is a much more practical, actionable approach uh, as opposed to, you know, we've got to cha- go to a single payer system or we've got to go to a fully, you know, cap, subcap system. Uh, you know, I've been in healthcare 30 years. I think I've seen every possible uh, hype wave that's come and gone. Um, those things ultimately don't really change our systems. And I think as as a leader of a system, that's my primary objective is how do I get our system to continue to change and evolve, evolve and transform? I can just picture James at a conference where a guy comes in talking about, you know, volume to value and James may be rolling his eyes or, or the Disney speaker, right? You know, talking about the Disney destination. I think you've already just in, in the few minutes we've had, you've already kind of deconstructed some of those things. And, and I love how you're also deconstructing the big amorphous system that is all about itself and turning it into specific service lines because a cancer experience is different from a primary care experience, is different from a pediatric experience. And it it seems like it's getting closer and closer to that consumer. Now, if I could use consumer uh, insight on this for just a minute, our NRC Health Market Insight Survey, we ask about systems separately from the rest of healthcare. So we'll ask consumers to wrap their minds around the concept of a system, which is still a little bit nebulous to the average consumer. We talk about systems a lot. They don't always talk about at the at the dining room table. But we also explain the concept of a system to consumers, and they've started to come around to the concept. In fact, we'll ask them, what's the most important thing that would cause you to choose a system versus, say, an independent hospital or independent doc versus a system doc? The number one answer they give for the system is the promise of coordinated care, that my care will be coordinated. Because to me, that reduces complexity. To me, that makes it less of me meandering through all those care experiences, that latitudinal journey you talk about, James, and more about just straightforward, everything is organized around me. In your mind, James, one of the, one of the biggest trends in healthcare, there's been a few, has been larger and larger and larger systems. So what do you think about the future of system care? Do you see the systemness of, of healthcare continuing to grow at the impressive clip? It's gone. 
in the past five, 10 years? Do you see that slowing down? And I guess ultimately, do you see that improving the journey of care or not? Well, it's a great question. And I think we're clearly seeing uh, a future uh, in which there are larger and larger organizations. I don't know that I'd necessarily call them systems of care, but certainly larger organizations. And you can, you know, you think about the, what are the primary motivations of that? Part of it is, um, you know, if you have uh, a bigger system, you may have more advantages when you're negotiating with a payer. Uh, if you have a bigger system, you may get uh, economies of scale on a number of the uh, back office and clinical support uh, functions. But it's hard to see outside of a few exceptions, true systems of care. And even if you look at, you know, arguably you could say Kaiser is probably the best one. But Kaiser has struggled outside of California to really replicate the system of care that it has. Right. And even in California, Northern California versus Southern California Kaiser are not the same, right? The systems act differently. So I think the the interesting thing uh, from my perspective, and you know, I'm old enough now that I, I probably won't be in a in a similar position to see the fruition of this, is you know, what's the equivalent of the organization that really creates a better system? And how does it then replicate that better way in bigger and bigger um, manifestations of itself, right? And it can't simply be in a global cap environment like Kaiser, where you've got an integrated insurance company and you know care delivery system. That's a wonderful model, but we're not going to create those models uh, organically. You can't afford to as a care delivery system, right? That, it's, it's a non-starter. So there has to be a better answer. And I think the better answer is in part how do we think about the relationship of the care provider to the uh, payer of the financing of care? Um, but it's also about what do we do to really make more systematic, more process oriented, uh, a little less idiosyncratic, our own system of care. Um, because my belief is if we can do that, we'll be uh, more efficient, our prices will be lower, our experience will be better, we'll use digital technology, better. We'll deliver higher levels of quality and safety because we'll be more reliable. We'll be more intentional about it. Uh, and patients will respond to that. But that's the thesis, right? That's a hypothesis that you, it's hard to see any single system in the, in the country at this point has really played that out in a way that then is uh, replicable. Yeah. The, I, I like your, your, the way that you challenge the notion of as organizations continue to grow, they might not necessarily be in the classical sense be thought of as healthcare delivery systems, right? But um, but we'll, we'll stay on the idea of system. We use that word for lack of a better one. But sure. uh, you know, as as organizations do scale up and scale out and grow, we know we know through research. I've read some of the things that you've written. Uh, you're, I think you're a champion of this as well. And that the best and most appropriate way to care for people isn't always right in the hospital. It's it's about making sure that that um, social determinants are, are are being addressed, measured, and hopefully improved. Uh, that that the cheapest way to keep somebody healthy is to well keep them well, right? It's a focus on wellness initiatives and healthy eating and active lifestyles and things like that, and and, and improving. Uh, improving individual levels of understanding of care and when to receive it and where to receive it and all those types of things. So it really comes back to appropriate care, right? We talked about this at the at the onset. 
maybe talk a little bit about some of the things that Fairview's done um, in, in, you know, in the markets in, in the Twin Cities and the markets that you serve. When you look at, I would say, um, more converting sites of care to things that are more appropriate for the community, for, for the community need um, in those in those geographies. Um, I, I know we, we talked, you know, sort of off camera about a couple of sites of care that you've been able to transition and convert to be more appropriate. Maybe share a little bit about that and, and how you're identifying those as um, sites of care to maybe reimagine how you're engaging with the community. Sure. Happy to, you know, it's, I think it's one of the things that we have to challenge ourselves on is, uh, you know, let's take St. Joseph's. So St. Joseph's hospitals in downtown St. Paul, it's the first hospital in Minnesota. It was established by the sisters of Carondelet uh, in the 1850s. And it was established in response to the cholera outbreak. It was exactly what the community needed, right? We have to keep that uh, in the front of our brains about, so, you know, this we shouldn't perpetuate things just because they've always been there or it's good for us. The question is, what's good? What's the right use of a facility or what's the right thing for the community? So uh, with St. Joseph's, uh, we've looked at this and said, you know, there are two other community hospitals uh, literally within a stone's throw. We believe there's a better use for this, this hospital, right? And to think about it as a hub for health and wellness and to be able to bring together, yes, clinical care, mental health care, uh, senior care, but also how do we, do, how do we address uh, some of the, you said social determinants. I'm like, a, am tilting at the windmill. I, I'm not a, I'm not a fan of the word determinants because it, seems makes it seem like there's nothing you can do about it it's determined right but it is a social risk right being poor is a risk to your care to your health right uh not having adequate shelter food access to food adequate training school etc are all health related risks those are the things that we have to figure out how we as healthcare organizations as major employers we're the fourth largest employer in the state of Minnesota, right? 34,000 people. That has enormous economic consequences, right? Who do we uh, contract with supplies? How do we interact with our community as an employer, et cetera? You know, how do we leverage our standing, but think about it in terms of what's the best way to interact uh, with the community that helps improve their health status? Sometimes that is a hospital. Sometimes it's an ambulatory clinic. Sometimes it's a hub for health and wellness. And in the case of Bethesda, we it was a long-term acute care facility. Uh, at the outset of the COVID uh, pandemic, we converted that into a specialty hospital for our COVID patients. It allowed us to be able to uh, centralize clinical trials, to learn about care processes uh, for COVID patients in a way where our outcomes were uh, better than most uh, across the country. But at the, as we see the uh, end of that, uh, of the pandemic, or at least in its current pandemic form, I think we'll end up with chronic COVID for uh, a while. But uh, we looked at that and said, well, what's the best use of that building in that community? And after conversations with the county and with the city of St. Paul, we determined, well, the unsheltered are one of the biggest healthcare risks and needs right now. We have a building. It's kind of set up for this. How about we use this to be able to provide uh, shelter for the unsheltered 
in St. Paul, especially going into a Minnesota winter. Um, but let's do it in a way that also allows us to provide access to care at that facility. Uh, so it's a response to what's the best thing for the community, not, gee, how do I figure out, how do I rationalize keeping a building uh, serving its original purpose as a hospital or as a clinic or as a long-term acute care facility, but what's best for the community. And I love how you, uh, you know, repurpose that in, in mind and, and also physically that, you know, it doesn't, we, we've gobbled up all these facilities and we've kept them the same and just tried to grow for growing sake. And instead, you know, you're taking this asset that you have and you're listening to the community meeting the community's needs. And that's where I think, you know, that's that's a great example of transformation as you lay it out. I want to talk about another part of the system, or should we say the organization? Um, and it's a big one because for a lot of consumers, it's the front door and it's what they cling to. And that's primary care. <clears throat> and so, you know, you've got over 5,000 employed docs. And, you know, I've sat in a room full of physicians and I've talked about some of the pieces of consumerism that are important. And you get some folded arms. Uh, you get some physicians who feel under attack and some physicians who don't feel as valued as they used to. But you have other physicians who are hungry and, and ready for that change and driving that change. I want to go back to a quote, James, from a recent guest we had, Dr. Steve Clasco, who said, part of the problem with transforming physician care, and he's a big believer that primary care is a huge driver of this, by the way. But he said, one of the problems is, we need the primary care physician to be the quarterback of the future of healthcare, consumer-centric healthcare, but we're paying them like they're the kicker. So I'm going to try to, I'm going to ask you to pull back some of those cost comments that you had that were so good on financing care, but also talk about delivering primary care. Where do you see the ability to change primary care? Can we change it? Um, and, and how do we think about going about doing that? Well, I think that if you were if you do a lit review and you look at well what's associated with the lowest total cost of care, you will find a um, a significant theme in that highly effective primary care is associated with lowering the total cost of care, and it it it's because uh, primary care is the point of primary and secondary prevention in large part. Uh, to be able to manage uh, either the onset of uh, chronic disease, to slow its progression, uh, and to be able to uh, lower total cost of care. I think that we have to get primary care physicians off a hamster wheel, right? So if we pay them an RVU basis and say you make your money simply by churning visits, we know what happens, right? You churn visits. Uh, yeah, you generate more RVUs, you can make more money. That is not better care. And we demonstrated that back in Seattle, um, uh, was documented in a health affairs uh, publication, in, I think it's 2007 or eight, where we actually reduced down the panel sizes, reduced down the number of visits, uh, and uh, changed the way that we uh, interacted with people, both telephonically and uh, through secure messaging. We didn't have video visits at that point. Uh, where we actually decreased the total cost of care pretty significantly, even though we were doing less physical contact in primary care. That when I left Seattle Group Health, it was about half of our visits, our touch points were uh, technology based uh, as opposed to physical based. But we also did, you know, 
really interesting things. Like if you called your clinic at the cert- a certain point in time, we had a hunt group where it might be your physician who answered if they were oxed in uh, at that point, right? So uh, I think we probably caused some uh, cardiac damage to certain patients who were shocked that their physician answered the, the uh, phone uh, when they called their clinic. Having said all of that, and I do think we need to challenge primary care and, uh, you know, we've done it, we did it in California, we're doing it here to think about how do we deliver care more uh, in a team-based way where the, the physician is much more of a quarterback for a larger team. And there is a point, uh, uh, Ed Wagner, I don't know if you're familiar with Ed, he was the father of the chronic disease model, he's a pioneer in population health. Well, Ed was at Group Health, Group Health Research Institute. He had an office down the hallway from mine. Ed always used to make the comment that, you know, it's not the cost of specialists. It's the uh, length of the lead in their pencils uh, that drives healthcare. So you cannot expect primary care in and of itself to be a, uh, an effective manager of uh, care uh, for all conditions. There are a point at which there's a handoff to specialty uh, and it has to be the specialist. And what we learned in Seattle was it's also about the specialists working with the primary care physicians to extend their ability to manage diabetes, to manage cardiovascular disease, et cetera. So it's not as simple as saying, oh, primary care is the answer. I think we have to come back and say, no, effective systems are the answer in which primary care is a critical component. And I'm afraid we're at a place in our, the way I look at some of the valuations of some of these primary care organizations, and they're simply unjustifiable. There's no way that primary care can have the magnitude of effect that those valuations would uh, infer. Um, We have to think about this as a system of care in which primary care plays a crucial role. Yeah, I I, I like the way you put that a lot. It just not... Where, where all of the responsibility for transforming <laughs> and for engaging with all, with all patients is not necessarily through primary care doctors right. and offices. Um, but as, as a piece of a of larger system, let's think about like all, all of your associates. I think you said it was 35,000. Mm-hmm. Obviously, very large organization. Um, last year, 2020, was a tough year. It forced some difficult decisions by many, many health systems in terms of um, having to furlough some associates and reconfigure. You know, we even talked about reconfiguring uh, care sites, making it more appropriate. Um, that creates some efficiency, or it can as well too. Maybe talk about uh, the, the associate engagement. Maybe we don't talk about that as as often as we as we should. Talk a lot about customer experience, but what about you know your your caregiver experience and and mm-hmm. you know what stop, maybe. What has Fairview done? What have you done with your team and your leadership team to uh, ensure that engagement levels are high and that they will continue to be moving forward? Well, it's it's a great question, and it's one that you know people always ask you. So, what keeps you up at night, right? And uh, that question is one that keeps me up at night. Transformation means change, and we as a human species tend not to like change, right? We like homeostasis. We like predictability. We like knowing, you know, tomorrow's going to look a lot like today because I know how to handle today. Even if today's not all that great, at least I know I can handle it. I can do it, repeat it tomorrow. So as we go through uh, all of the change that we need to to truly transform care, it has a significant impact on uh, our people. Now, the trick, I think, is threefold. One is 
we have to continue to come back to the why. Why do we make these changes? Why do we have to transform, right? Affordability is absolutely uh, front and center to access, right? If you can't afford care, you can't access care. It Affordability is no longer a poor person's problem. It's a middle-class problem, right? I have got people who have good commercial insurance, quote unquote, good in commercial insurance, who have to make trade-off decisions about the care they're going to receive because of the costs of it. Well, that's not providing adequate access. So we have to be concerned about that. And so really being crisp about the why. I think the second thing is, you know, as we uh, survey and ask our, our folks, um, you know, about their experience, one of the things that stands out as a strength is their relationship with their, their frontline supervisor. And so, you know, in large part, our organization for most people is defined by, well, who's their most immediate boss? That's, that's Fairview. It's not me. Uh, I'm not interacting with most of those 34,000 on any given day, but their first line supervisor is. So how do we make sure that that first line supervisor is equipped and capable to really help lead that change? And for that to occur means, you know, starting with my team and their next uh, direct reports down to that first, you know, 500 leaders, we have to be very capable of supporting our frontline supervisors, our first line leaders in helping them support the people who have to deal with, you know, many of the changes. And some of them are hard, right? Some of them are, uh, you don't have a job here. Um, or your job's changed. It's no longer X, it's Y. Or it's no longer in this place, it's in that place. Those are hard. Those are disruptive. Um, and we need to be able to be in a position where we can support our frontline leaders to help support those individuals. I think the, th the third thing I would say is um, delivering healthcare, I think, uh, especially during the time of COVID, has really put a, uh, a spotlight on how challenging care delivery can be. Now, it's challenging because, <clears throat> excuse me, you're dealing with uh, people at a very vulnerable time for them, right? This may be some of the lowest points in their life. They're uh, challenged by the consequences and the implications of disease and of the complexity of the system. It's hard on uh, caregivers. So part of what we also have to do is figure out how do we make their job less burdensome? How do we make it easier? So we ran a program uh, a couple of years ago called Get Rid of Stupid Things, and you could replace stupid with another S word, right? Um, so the, uh, the idea was to identify things, particularly around the use of the electronic medical record, which just got in the way. It was just gravel in the shoes. But if you do something over and over again, and that same piece of gravel is always there, it's kind of annoying. And we got rid of hundreds of those. And I think we have to amplify those efforts and we have to demand more of the technology we're using uh, so that it's, it's, getting, uh, it's not getting in the way of being able to deliver care, that it's actually helping to deliver care. And I'm, you know, we have a terrific uh, chief digital officer, Dr. Samir Badlani, who's doing a great job of starting to pivot our organization to also not just think about the, the digital implications for consumers, but what are the digital implications for 
uh, our associates and our, our people to make sure that the technology is actually making it easier to do the job, not harder. Yeah, and I love that at the organizational level, how you describe some of those. I think the get rid of stupid things is like it's, we, that should go right into a strategy compendium, <laughs> get, right? Get ready for a flood of emails from uh, <laughs> from, <laughs> from listeners. listeners and watchers that they James, want I'd that like plan to, line. <laughs> I'd like to implement that in my organization. You have the playbook. Let me be clear, because I stole that <laughs> shamelessly. That came from I think it was the University of Hawaii did it originally, and I loved it so much that I stole it shamelessly. So let's just make sure they get it. Credit. Well, I'd love to learn more about it, especially if it's on site. So uh, we, we'll we'll look into that. And and as you're talking about the organization, one other thing I've I've heard you say, James, is that you think of Fairview Health as a learning organization, and that that really connected with me. So can you describe what a learning organization is to you? Well, I think it's one that I mean at, at the most uh, at the highest level. Uh, it's a recognition that you're never there, right? That you the, you have to continually be uh, learning and adapting uh, to uh, either changing circumstances or uh, to improving knowledge. But I think particularly in an academic healthcare system. So uh, I was, and, and again, this is apocryphal. I can't document this uh, to the degree that I would like to. But there was a, uh, I heard a, a presentation around if you were born uh, and went to medical school in the 1950s and you mastered the complete body of knowledge of medicine, it would not double for the next 50 years. If you took a medical school graduate today and they were, if it were even possible to master the entire body of knowledge, it would double in six months post-graduation. That is how fast healthcare knowledge is expanding. We're in the middle of a bioscience revolution. So I think as an organization doing what we're doing, you know, and starting from our starting point in an industry, we have to be humble enough to say, we can't, we can't be static. We have to continue to challenge ourselves to learn and to get better. And so a learning organization for me is just the systematic application of that principle whether it's at the process level, you know, yes, that's how we do it today, but can we make it a little bit better? Are there things that we can improve that engage all 34,000 of us? Or if it's at the, you know, evidence-based level at a high, the highest level of science, or it's <clears throat> new treatments, and how do we think about the introduction of those new treatments into our system? <clears throat> those are all aspects, I think, of a learning organization that doesn't, doesn't believe that it's got the, all the answers, and it's just a matter of replicating those answers time and time again. Yeah, I love that. And, you know, I think about this, Brian, it's it's uh, acknowledging that you're never there, I think, is uncomfortable for some executives. You know, it's, you, you want to have this five year plan. And we've we've been conducting CEO interviews, did one with James a few months ago where, you know, a lot of people said, well, we had this 2020 plan, right? That was the year it was all going to put together. And <laughs> there's no better of example of how you're never there than 2020. Um, one thing that you've talked about, James, is sort of looking at the status quo as almost an enemy. You know, I've, I've read some of your things on, you know, pushing back against the status quo in an active manner in order to drive change, which I think is really interesting because, again, as humans, we want to accept the status quo. We want a little comfort in our lives. We don't necessarily want to change. I love the today versus tomorrow. But tell me a little bit about 
what the status quo looks like now that it's been upended. And, and maybe it's creeping back in 2021 in healthcare. But if, if there's other people listening or watching who want to be sort of adversaries of the status quo like you, what does that look like in, let's say, the next year in terms of as this industry comes out of this event that has never happened before? Well, yeah, I, th I think that COVID in many ways, the, the impact it's had is to accelerate the need for a lot of the changes we already knew needed to happen. Um, but now the, uh, you know, the level of uh, digital enablement, the uh, disproportionate impact COVID has had on uh, communities of color. I mean, just there's been so many aspects that COVID has laid bare uh, in terms of some of the challenges our healthcare system have. I think it, it it stems from, and you're you're absolutely right. I mean, human beings, we love homeostasis, right? We love we love stability. And I think the the danger is as we get to this, you know, post epidemic phase of COVID, is that everything's going to try to snap back to where it was. I think we have to continue to do two things. One is make sure that we're clear about what the values are right what what on what basis do we do uh to make our decisions right it's about our patients it's about the things that we are here to do and then it's also about making sure that we're clear about the problems right i i think it's you know sometimes people get tired of hearing about what's not working but at the same time if we're not clear about target actual gap please explain let's figure this out let's learn why why is it hard for our patients to get admitted into this hospital? Or why do we have a higher infection rate uh, for uh, county in this hospital versus this hospital? Or why is access in this specialty different and less accessible than this one? If we don't ask those hard questions and then engage people in trying to figure out, okay, so why is that? And to truly learn, then I do think we it's we fall back into that. Well, it is you know it's the normalized uh, deviance, right? Well, yeah, it's it's okay. It's it's what we do, uh, and we have to continue to sell the problem. But it has to be a problem oriented into something meaningful, which is how do we best serve our patients. I love the phrase normalized deviance. I don't think we've had that on the podcast yet. Uh, we could keep going, but I, I know our time is drawing to a close. I got to take this full circle because Brian and I know about this, but I, our readers and viewers may not. Uh, so let's go back to Montana, big sky country. You started your career. You spent seven years as a math teacher, which I totally get. I could hear that already. But you spent seven years as a math teacher and a basketball coach back in Montana. Is there anything from that time at the beginning of your career that comes in handy now? And if you can give us an application, we'd love to hear one. Well, I used to joke that I learned every uh, leadership lesson there was to learn as a small town Montana basketball coach where you put your product out on the floor every Friday and Saturday night and got really immediate feedback, not just on the scoreboard, but from you know, the 5,000 people who lived in that small town who either thought you were a genius or an idiot. Uh, so, you know, I, I think part of the learnings that I take away from that is, you know, focus on what's important, focus on getting better, right? Listen, but don't necessarily take to heart your critics, right? You should hear it, evaluate it, 
make a decision about whether it's something that you should um, learn more about. Is there a, a true opportunity there to improve? Or is it just people complaining about something that um, <clears throat> it's their lot in life to complain about? So there were a lot of things that uh, you know I could take away and point towards that that uh, seven years. Um, but I also say, you know, that that confidence that you place in the people who are around you, and this is small system, right? This is, you know, uh, for the boys team or girls team, it's 20 kids basically uh, that you were responsible for as a head coach. It's a very small system, but to be able to create a system that allows people to do their best, right? To tap into their potential. You know, that's our job at any level leadership, whether it's, you know, 20, uh, 20 kids in a high school basketball program, or it's 34,000 people uh, in a in multi-billion dollar healthcare organization. Our job is to create a system that allows people to reach their full potential and to deliver on some outcome. And so, yeah, there's some, there's some, uh, some learnings and some analogies that I've taken forth from that very formative time, a long time ago. I love it. It's great. We love it. I love it. You, you now, you now, uh, you know, coach a team of thirty-four thousand plus. But hey, everybody plays a role, and I love how those principles apply. I think if James was my coach in high school, I feel like I would have made the league. I do. I feel inspired. You would have had your hands full for sure, James. I've seen Ryan play. <laughs> Well, thank you so much. We could we could do another hour, but this has been wonderful. Again, we want to thank J James Hereford from Fairview Health up in the Twin Cities area. Uh, it's been incredible your ability to talk through all these issues plaguing the industry and give us some hopeful, hopeful pieces of insight as we go forward. We really appreciate you joining us. Well, it's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. Take care. Thanks, James. Take care.